Hello there and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor. Asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask, right here at sfm.scot. I'm John Cole, and this week we'll be talking to English-based journalist Alan Nixon about the state of Scottish football in general, and particularly about his boyhood heroes Patrick Thistle. We will also be talking to former Celtic and Scotland defender Jim Craig on the difference in the physical nature of the game he played and the 21st century one. In a week where the biggest shock news was Gordon Strachan's unexpected decision to remain the manager of the national team and Joey Bartlett's continued Twitter silence, it came as no surprise at all that the SFA have once again shot themselves in the foot. Having failed to read back to themselves an explanation they gave to the Guardian for their actions in Licensegate, the affair concerning Rangers FC being cleared to play in Europe in 2011, they inadvertently dropped themselves in it over the Nemo Smith inquiry. More Hamden fails at the epic end of the spectrum. Meanwhile, Hearts will be looking to get full points on Monday night at Hamilton as their chief rivals in league business, Aberdeen and Rangers, both won on Saturday. Aberdeen with a fine away win in Inverness and Rangers with an injury time strike to give them a 1-0 win over Dundee. St Johnson suffered a 2-4 reversal home at Jim McIntyre's ever-improving Ross County, while Celtic travelled to Ayrshire on Friday night overcoming Kilmarnock on their artificial pitch with the game's only goal. Consequently, before the Hamilton Hearts game on Monday, the top five positions showed no change, but Motherwell's 2-0 victory over a disappointing Patrick Thistle saw them jump into the top six at the expense of Inverness. More in Celtic and Patrick Thistle when we speak to Alan Nixon and Jim Craig later in the programme. After a disappointing, some may even say unacceptable string of results in the World Cup campaign, which has effectively killed off the national team's hopes of qualification for Russia in 2018, most commentators expected Gordon Strachan to resign. Pressure has in fact been building up in the media, and the manager had seemed to be losing support from that source. Chris Sutton, who originally conferred the Chesney epithet upon Strachan, has been leading the media calls for a change. There's no love lost between Sutton and Strachan, that much is true. However, that's a far cry from making Sutton wrong. As Stuart Cosgrove said in this programme last week, Gordon Strachan has run out of road in his Scotland journey. Results, tactical approaches to games, mystifying selection policies, and the team's performances all speak for themselves. Added to that, his acerbic, smart-ass approach to interviews makes it difficult for him to fill up his goodwill bucket to any meaningful level. But here's the thing, we've been informed by others better informed than us that the SFA persuaded Strachan to stay until they could find a replacement. In a mirror of the government's failure to provide a post-Brexit plan B, the SFA have been caught in the hop also. Perhaps they thought there was no question of us being put into fifth position in the group table so soon in the campaign. Maybe they were just being incompetent anyway, you choose. Either way, the upshot is that they're hoping by Christmas, David Moyes will have been sacked by Sunderland or walks away. Problem solved. Alan Nixon is a highly respected football journalist renowned for having the ear of players and managers, both in Scotland and in England. Whilst at University in Glasgow, he founded the seminal and influential Jags Mag fanzine dedicated to his team, Partick Thistle. Setting out in a career in journalism in the late 1970s, his typewriter has taken him from Plymouth to the Sun via Granada TV, The Mirror and The People, as well as being a pen for hire on a freelance basis. I spoke to Alan on Sunday to get his thoughts on the Jags' new and old, the SFA, Celtic played in England 
and how he and his mates drove Bamber Gascoigne to distraction. Alan, thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. From my point of view, Thistle have had a fairly disappointing season. Would you Would you agree with that? I think the big uh, bugbear with me is the fact that we had those three home games when we could have had uh, an extra six points, but for late goals costing us wins. And, and I have a terrible feeling that we might regret that come the end of the season. Um, because if we'd had those points, we'd be sitting quite comfortable just now and... Um, as it is every week, you, you know we are keeping one eye in the bottom two positions, and that's not going to change for the for the foreseeable future. So that is the biggest disappointment. Um, the plus side is I don't think there's very much in this league, and if we do actually get our form together and and get a little bit of a run going, then you know we we will be all right. We'll not be bottom two, but it would be great to try and get in that top six at some stage in our history. Yeah, I suppose looking at it, uh, you know, with a wee bit of perspective, that you're, you're only a point off the bottom two at the moment, but you're only two points away from the top six. Well, the point off the bottom two also includes a game in hand against Celtic, which were notoriously poor at. Uh, no, there's no doubt, if we if we had held on in, in two of those three games, I mean, you'll always lose late goals like you'll always score them, but we do seem to concede more than we score late doors. If we'd held on for two points or four points more, then that picture looks a lot rosier. So, yeah, that is the major regret of the season. But we've had, there's extenuating circumstances I don't think the, the goalkeeping problems are, are doing us any favours at all. Uh, we may just have found a reasonable system to play now with three at the back. I think there's room for improvement, but um, I, I don't like the, the kind of attitude that some Thistle fans have, which is, you know, we should be glad uh, just to be in the Premier League. Um, we could be doing better than this. This is not a great Premier League. We could be doing better. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually, but because what is realistic going forward for Thistle fans? I think that, that there is a maybe a perception amongst fans of other clubs that, that clubs like Thistle are just happy to be in the Premier League, but what would take them to that to the next level of being a, a, a regular top six club? Well, my big hope is the kids we've got coming through. I mean, very few clubs in Scotland do spend time and money on their, on their youngsters. We're very fortunate to have the weird money, um, which I think we'd all love to have. Uh, being millionaires, billionaires in the lottery and pump a few quid into the Jags. Mm. Uh, an absolute credit to them for doing that. And we're now seeing results. I mean, the kids are doing fantastic in the development league and this is a very, very young team playing against older people. Um, and I think we've got the best crop of kids that we've, we've probably had for 50 years when I first started, uh, when we have half a Scotland team coming through the ranks as kids. Um, I think we might be getting close to that for the first time in a long, long time. And my hope is that in the next year or two, if we stay in the Premier League, that these lads are going to get a chance to come in. And that is our really only way of uh, of becoming better, is if we get back to where we started all those years ago, which is finding our own mm. and uh, turning them into stars. And what about the people to uh, to develop them even further? I mean, what's the manager's report card from your point of view? Uh, look, Archie's a one-off just as we're a one-off. I mean, last season, any other club would have sacked a manager for the start we had, but we stood by Archie because of the fact that he is, he is a club legend and we don't do that kind of thing. Um, he'll always be um, in my good books for taking Thistle up when McNamara walked away. Yes, he'll make the odd mistake. Not sure the transfer signings are great, although it's not easy when you're Thistle and you don't have much money. But there's a kind of common sense about him, which... Um, keeps the ship quite level so no I don't mind that at all 
come the time when the kids are coming through, that's going to be fascinating. And do we maybe look at the guys who've been coaching them as kids and then put them in the first team? Mm. Uh, that may be a problem for two or three years down the line. But in the meantime, quite happy for Archie to carry on. I, I wouldn't be blind faith about him. Yeah, there's times I think he could do certain things different. But I do also know that he's under massive restrictions in terms of cash. So no, I would give him um, I'd give him three stars out of four. Talking about cash and, and, and how clubs like Thistle have started to of cash, Thistle, along with Motherwell and St Mirren, because of their geography, probably suffer more than than others from that Celtic Rangers fan drain. How infuriating do you think that is for Thistle as a club and how infuriating is it for you as a fan? Well, we, you can never plan ahead at Thistle for having a lot of money because of a fan base. We've got a very small and probably decreasing number of supporters that's in the area isn't what it was in terms of population. West End of Glasgow is now more gentrified than ever. And we do have an old support, probably the older support going. So 10 years or so, about a few of us dropping off the perch, <laughs> if we're not careful. Um, so no, that is a difficulty. You know, we, uh, we are defying the odds and it'll always be that way. We don't have a religion, so we're not going to uh, get people at birth. You've got to choose to be a Thistle fan or you've got to be born in the area. So um, we're up against it. Uh, but you can sometimes get strength in those circumstances. And as I say, if you get people putting money in like the Weirs have and having the vision to put the money in at mm. youth level, then that really should be the blueprint, not just for us, but for every club. Is your exile, if you like, and you're probably more qualified than most people to answer this question because you've been down south for a long time now. Yes. Um, the frustration of a fan and like supporting his team remotely? Well, when I first left, I had to go, to be honest with you. I mean, if I wanted to start working, I had to be as far away as possible. Or I'd have gone back every Saturday rather than work. So I went as far as I could. And I went down to Plymouth, which was 500 miles away. And let me tell you, that was a trick. Um, so yeah, it was very, very hard at first. Really hard at first. Uh, especially in those days. I mean, we're blessed these days. We've got the television, we've got the internet, we've got everything we can know what's going on every minute of the game, how the team's doing. Back then, I was in a newspaper office and I would actually go in without pay on a Saturday just to be watching the teleprinter to get the final score first. <laughs> and um, people in Plymouth were learning also. It's a strange language at the time. But, I mean, magnificent when, when the result comes soon, it's great. But when it loses and you can't see it and you don't know what's happened, uh, you're distraught. As I say, these days, it's not as bad. I feel terrible that I don't get as often as I should. Um, but at least you're seeing the extended highlights in Alba occasionally with the sound turned down clearly. Uh, and you get when they're very nice to show us live. It's, it's great as well. It's not the same. And I really have so much admiration for the Thistle fans who've been there and suffered through the last 38 years since I've been there. Um, and these people are really what the club is all about. Uh, I'm just a, a long distance admirer. He was born at the right time and saw a fantastic generation, late 60s and throughout the 70s. So, um, no, you don't lose that and you never will. And you ask MD now, who shares a press box with me on a Saturday, yeah, they'll know when Thistler are winning or losing, judging by the noises that are coming <laughs> out of me. What's your memories of the, the League Cup final win against Celtic in, in 71, wasn't it? I mean, there were so many good days run about then. People forget how good we were that season. We beat Rangers, we beat Aberdeen. We smashed a very good St. Johnson side 5-1 on the route to that final. 
final itself, it's funny. You, know, you went there completely scared stuff. We thought, you know, Celtic usually were scoring eight against us. And this is a team that had just been in the European Cup final. And we're going there thinking, oh, no. I hope this magic young team has really got a future isn't going to get destroyed here. And all these youngsters ripped apart, you know, these thin babies that we had in the side. And you think, oh, no, really, this is going to be a bad day. And then you get there and... It's just wonderful. I can still, I can still see the colours. I can see the red blaze around the pitch and the, the green. And the, the, you know, it, it was just a magic, magic day, and it, it was everything that could go right went right. And we just, we, we were fantastic on the day. But it's funny. I tell people, and it's a true story. At half time, you know, you're there with your mates. You're just completely, you're gone mentally with the whole thing. And even then, we're saying, do you think we'll get a replay out of this? You know, <laughs> and. Uh, and the second half is the longest second half in history. I've never known anything like it. Big Ruffy was magic. And by the time they scored, we thought, no, we're going to be OK. And then afterwards, going back to the ground, typical thistle, typical chaos. Nobody had arranged anything. We got back to the ground. Nobody thought we'd win. So there we go. Alec Ray with a cup comes off the bus, goes to the ground, because we're going to show the, uh, the trophy to all the fans inside the ground, and there isn't a key to get in the ground. So we're all locked out. It was just typical Thistle and a day of magic and madness. To me, there's an echo of that Thistle 71 Cup win, which has reverberated around Scottish football over the past couple of seasons. I remember a friend of mine, Guy Fubelison, called Bobby Black, and he was uh, he was a mad Thistle supporter. And I'll never forget the joy in Bobby's face. And he, he was I think he was drunk for a fortnight after it. And, and I've seen that with St. Johnson fans, with uh, Ross County fans over the past couple, Inverness fans over the past couple of years, years as well. It, it's great when when teams who have you know worked so hard to to get themselves into an established position get that success, isn't it? Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I talked to some of the players from the time. I, I talked to Ronnie Glavin a lot, and I know Ronnie, um, you know, to this day, um, has a great love for Thistle and some of the stories he tells you. You know, the, the background to that, that as well, you know, a lot of that Thistle team had played in the reserves against Celtic two years before, and this was a great Celtic team. Yeah. And Celtic put out a lot of guys coming back from injuries, and he beat us 10-1. Didn't just beat us, they embarrassed us, they kicked us, they humiliated us. Barry Old, funnily enough, who'd be one of our great managers, was going around topping these youngsters and teaching them a lesson. And um, and that stuck with them. And one of the reasons that those kids played so well in the final was that they owed them for that day. And they never forgot it. Yeah. You know, guys like Ronnie, who was brought up in a Celtic family, really didn't like Celtic at that time <laughs> because of what had happened. And there was, this, you know, these are, these are local boys. You know, they're, they're going about the town and they're second-class citizens uh, compared to the Celtic guys and all, you know, household names and it was a real underdog thing and it wasn't just amongst the fans it was amongst the players it was so everything came together and I also remember the St. Johnson thing we beat them 5-1 I was there when St. Johnson beat us 8-1 at Fir Hill 8-1 at Fir Hill two years before that and I think there was about six of us left in the ground at the end of the game and you just think well the great thing about Thistle's success stories is that you remember the failures as well and the contrast is what makes it so good. 
Well, speaking of contrast, what about the the, the international team uh, moving on? Uh, Strachan, oh. everybody expected him uh, to hand in his resignation this week. I'm hearing that uh, that he's only agreed quite reluctantly to stay on until they find somebody else over maybe the Christmas period. It'd be a good thing for the SFA not to have a lot of speculation, but, but I could be speculating there. What, what's your take on the whole thing? I think the SFA is what you look at here, not just Strachan. Who are they? Who's Stuart Reagan? Seriously, who's he going to inspire? And the committee, you know, Rob Petrie from Hibs. Hibs are in the second division, aren't they? You know, they're a real advert for success. The, the SFA have always been low-key owners of football clubs, playing little bits of political games with no vision whatsoever. And that's why we're left with somebody like Gordon Strachan, whose background team is Mark McGee and Andy Watson, who were probably up-and-coming managers and coaches 20 years ago. They're now spent forces. What have you got underneath it? Scott Gemmell? No, never going to be a manager. Ricky Spragia, completely failed in the job. We have had one of the best coaching academies in the world. Josie Mourinho was there. Andre Villas-Boas was there in the last 20 or 30 years. It was the pride of the SFA was the coaching academy. And yet that's the best we can produce. Who's kidding who? It's not just striking, it's the SFA as well. It's complacent, it's pathetic. See, the, the, the thing about the SFA is that they, they do sell themselves very well to the fans, don't they? Because the fans really believe that they're some sort of quasi-legal organisation, guardians of the game, when in fact they're really a business cartel. And it's a small-time business cartel as well. Yeah. It's, it's very petty, you know, it really is petty. I, I mean, I, I look back and I think historically, something you know, about 50 years from now, somebody will say, why did they build a new Hamden that size? That was in Hamden when there was 130,000 people. That was when Scotland were mad about football. Now we've got a small ground by international standards. And it's small thinking. And that is... It does me in. I mean, the older you get, the more disappointed you get in yeah. people. As, as somebody once said to me. And it's true. We just do not have any form of vision. Look, I'm not saying this is a great crop of players we've got. But we're better then the results are looking. There are good players not being picked. And it's striking as very much a little bit too smart for his own good. He falls out with people. And no, no, not for me. I'd have him gone. We need to get somebody in at the leadership at the top, a little bit of swagger. And underneath it, let's start bringing coaches through. I remember when Scotland had joked Steen at the helm. His assistants, Jim McLean, Alex Ferguson. Now, why can't we get near that now? We have got still got managers about. Why can't we get them involved in some way? I know that club football has taken over more than ever. Why not go and get Graham Souness part-time as manager and bring in a couple of young coaches, get the best young coaches? So get a couple of good young people under him. Get Graham Alexander out of Scunthorpe. Get Stuart McCall back in. We've not been terribly good since Stuart McCall left, is we? Get guys like that back in, coaching it, with a proper figurehead and say, well, look, we're not going to cut costs. We're going to actually spend a couple of bob on this team. Let's make a statement. Let's make people proud of us. The fans have been great. But I've got to say, the fans are now only going for the social. They're yeah. not going for the football. Or the expectation of, of winning anymore. That's, that's, that's one of the sad things. No, it's sad. Yeah. sad. Stuart Cosgrove said to me last week that, that, that he thinks that the selection policy is based very much on where 
players play, and that there, there there seems to be this that this perception north of the border that if you play in the English Championship, you must be better than a Scottish Premiership player. I know Aberdeen fans have been going mental that their players haven't been picked for the Scotland team, uh, and think particularly of uh, of Shinny. What's your idea of that? I mean, obviously you know the English game very well. Is it true that the people that play in the English Championship and in the English Premiership are better than the players in the, in the Scottish Premier League? I think in certain key areas we are a little bit short. We're short at centre-half, which is why Hanley plays as often as he does, because he wouldn't be anywhere near it if we had a good squad. Um, we've got far too many left-backs. We don't have enough right-backs. So there are imbalances uh, in the squad. But it amazes me that somebody like Jordan Rhodes was discarded and never used properly. Charlie Adam would still be close to a squad for me. And we have now finally got a player like Oliver Burke. I know he's young and nobody knows quite where he plays yet, but we don't know how to use him. And yeah. what we should be doing is exploiting him. We should be using somebody with pace, something we just don't have, and do it better. As for the comparisons between the Championship and the Scottish Premier, I mean, bear in mind, Strachan has probably spent more time in England in his last 15 years than he has in Scotland. Yeah. He will see that there are guys in the championship who are decent journeyman types, you know, your Chris Martin types, who will do a job uh, as opposed to lads who are maybe stars in Scotland. But the Scottish Premier League is not terribly good, and that's not being disrespectful to Aberdeen, but this kind of Aberdeen is nowhere near Aberdeen of its glory era. Uh, and the Celtic side is full of foreign lads. So it's not really a major surprise to me that he does look at the championship so much. I just don't know whether he picks the right people. Well, t- talking about comparison between the, 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 the two countries and the football that's played there, the, this old uh, chestnut about uh, Celtic going to play in England or any other Scottish club for that matter, obviously usually people say Celtic, Rangers, maybe Aberdeen, maybe Hearts and things like that. Don't really think it's a great idea. The cards on the table, personally, I, I think that Scottish teams should play in Scotland. But, but what's your view of the... A, the, the, the possibility of something like that happening and B, uh, the desirability of it happening? Well, Celtic have been trying for years to do it. They have been, I mean, well, Rangers have had their own problems. Uh, Celtic have really been um, the driving force behind that. I knew some, uh, a fella down here, a chairman down here, well, I'll name him, Phil Gartside at Bolton, yeah. who was very much uh, the go-between um, involved in trying to get Celtic down to play in England. And Celtic were so desperate that Celtic would have gone in at virtually any level of English football to get across the border and play more competitive football and fill the ground and get the commercial side of it. Celtic were even willing to give up being in the Champions League for that. And bear that in mind that you know they weren't they weren't going to get their free pass to the Champions League and the money that brings. That just tells you how much money Celtic think they could make south of the border. Yeah. It's very unfortunate that that's not going to happen. It would be great to see just for variety. It would probably damage Scotland's domestic football beyond repair uh, but it would be interesting for a neutral uh, to see how Celtic would do south of the border um, I think the chance is probably gone um, because the plan uh, Phil Gartside's plan was to have two top leagues and invite Celtic and possibly I have to say possibly Rangers um, into it 
and that got a lot of support in quarters down here, as high as the Prime Minister at one stage, uh, to get Scottish clubs involved in, uh, in a British league like that. Let's be fair, there are Welsh clubs in the English league. Yeah. So it's not like we're talking about some you know, unmentionable divide here. Uh, it would have involved a great deal of bravery for Celtic to come down here and give up that guaranteed money uh, to try their arm and play in English football. It's a shame that we won't see it. It would have been very, very interesting. Uh, the repercussions for the Scottish domestic game, who knows, revolutionary, it's never happened before. A major club like that walking out. Could have been very damaging. Might not have been, I must say, to lose one of your major clubs and possibly two. Oh, it really does worry you. Um, but then again, it becomes a level playing field for everybody else. And who knows, so maybe there's some good could have come of that, but... Um, it would have been seismic. I just don't think it's going to happen now. Well, given the fact that, that, that it probably isn't going to happen now, would it not be better if Celtic stopped being preoccupied with it and maybe tried to turn inwards and, and help to fix what's wrong with Scottish football? There, there is something in that argument that's very philanthropic. I just don't think football is very philanthropic these days. I mean, Celtic are running away with a league more than I've ever known. 13 points, is it? Yeah. Uh, well, 10, 10 at the moment. Well, it's, it's, it's too much. The league's over. What's the challenge? You know, I laughed recently when they, when they talked about the possibility of Steven Gerrard going to Celtic for the second half of the season. Well, why would that appeal to anybody? The league's over. He's not going to play in Europe. What's the point? Sadly, Celtic are going to find that very shortly. They are so dominant. What is the point in spending big money on players? Because you're going to win the league anyway. You're going to maybe get a crack at the Champions League. Hopefully so, get through your qualifying matches and get the, the group stages every year. So you're going to be making money, you're going to find the odd player and sell them. So your life's fine, everybody else is a bit knackered and living in the poverty line. But, you know, there are worse things for Celtic. So yeah, you know, I, I salute their ambition in wanting to test themselves somewhere else. Um, but they actually can't lose if they stay in Scotland either. Talking about um, your profession now, big bugbear that we have in, in SFM is the fact that uh, the standard of journalism in Scottish football is, is really poor, that people are basically working with relationships and saying what their friends want them to say in the papers. That's certainly our perception. I used to be friends with an old Thistle supporter, a guy uh, who you probably knew, Malky Monroe. And, yes. and Malky was a wonderful writer. He was he, he was a proper journalist. He, you know, he, he would go and find stories. He would make them readable and, and you know people people loved them because of that I I don't see that anymore either to be fair with some honourable exceptions either north or south of the border No there's no doubt about it in the last 10-20 uh, years there, there's now a great divide uh, between clubs and the media you know, there was a time when you could get very close to players and get close to managers and stories would come out some very funny ones and some good ones some interesting ones now it is much more controlled. There is a kind of, uh, there's a circuit, if you like, of you'll have the pre-match stuff, you'll have the match stuff, and you'll have the after-match stuff. And it's all about that. And individual stories as such don't really crop up very often. Mm. And yes, you're correct that clubs are now very good. They employ people to, to feed the party line. Uh, and you've also got television which feeds the party line 24 hours a day. They'll get out what they want to get out. They'll leak what they want to get out. And they're quite good at it. There's no doubt about that. And 
Worst of all, you've got a situation that there's Celtic and there's Rangers, and that's the only thing that people really want to know in the papers, newspaper offices. And that is reflected in the coverage. So if your job is to be a club reporter, you are going to more often than not pussy in with a club and put out things that they want to put out and not really take the risk of going against them. Mm. Um, That's one of the main reasons I left in the first place. I mean, I hated the old firm with a passion because uh, I'm just off the terraces. There's no way in the world I was going to write nice things about Rangers or Celtic. So that was one of the reasons why I had to go to England. And although I went back up to Scotland for two or three years, I was very fortunate. It was at a time when Aberdeen and Dundee United were powerful. And therefore, Rangers and Celtic actually had to come to you and be, you know, want you to help them a little bit, you know, get them in the papers a little bit. Uh, and it was a far, far healthier scene in the 80s than it is now because you had Aberdeen, they were taking on the, the West Coast. You'd indeed hated to were alone to themselves. And they were both powerful, not just domestically, but on the European front. Fabulous teams. And also you found the players as well. Players were brilliant back then. They, were, they weren't paid very well. They were great the newspaper guys. I was I was young at the time. And the, the, I'm in the same age group as the players. You're going out drinking with them and socialising with them. They'll tell you things they wouldn't, you know, when they're relaxed that, uh, you know, just would not happen today. I mean, I laugh at that Wayne Rooney in the England story about players going out for a drink. You know, the, the shock and the horror and mock disgust about this. Players were always out drinking and always have been. Back in my day, there was a there was a scene in Glasgow on a Thursday night. Players, but all sorts of clubs would be mixing and mingling in the pubs till late at night. And that's a Thursday night before a Saturday game. Didn't do them any harm come the weekend. If you went too far, you got locked, you got dropped, you didn't get your match bonus, you didn't get your win bonus, and that was the discipline that was involved back then. And I tell you what, it worked. I was, I was going to ask you about the Rooney thing, actually, because it, it seems to me there's a lot of hypocrisy surrounding that. Also, in the face of it, what it seems to me is that the guy was doing some people a favour by turning up at their wedding in the hotel well, and, and posing for photos. Curses a modern man is the, is the phone and the camera, isn't it? Yeah. You just can't do anything. Everybody wants to get a picture of you. Everybody wants to get a slice of celebrity. And Rooney has known that um, he wasn't going to be playing in midweek. And he's, he's in amongst his pals. He's relaxing. Yeah, he's obviously got out of his head with the baby. But so what? I mean, I, I know for a fact that when Scotland played England in 96, Scotland lost and the boys got absolutely hammered because they were so disappointed at the result. They, mm. they put so much into it. And these players are human beings. You know, if they lose a game like that, it gets to them one way or another. The, the Scotland players were out of their brains that night, and a couple of them didn't even make training the next day, which was covered up, because the training was done away from the, the prying eye. Mm. The only reason I know is that one of them told me exactly what had happened. I uh, wasn't proud of it, but... Come the Tuesday, Scotland then played Switzerland and put on one of the best performances I've ever seen from a Scotland team. So, all the stuff about athleticism and looking after your body, yeah, yeah, do that most of the time, and they do that most of the time. But there are times when you need a blowout. You know, and these guys did it and then performed magnificently for their country at the end of a tiring season and two days after being out of their heads. So... I think people need to be a little bit less pompous about footballers relaxing. You know, look, they don't go out and about, 
these days, they're all getting paid fortunes. So when they do go out, it'll be on the VIP circuit. Mm. So it's very rare for fans and players to actually mingle these days. And we and we all say we all long for the days when they did. Uh, and then when they do, they get hammered for it. So the public's as much to blame there as the footballers and the media. Uh, the media have gone over the top with it, but the, the reason they've gone over the top with it is that they've got a picture of an England captain uh, with his eyes popping out his head. Oh, we've never seen that before. Well, do you know what? I've seen that lots of times. Speaking of people being out of their heads, Alan, uh, I'm going to take you back to Granada Studios. I think it was 1975. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, uh, when you were a member of the <laughs> University. Incidentally, I was at that university after you. I was still living that down, you know, like years after it. I'm still living it down now, 40 years after. Number, number one, you got absolutely humped. Num- yeah. <laughs> number two, uh, I, I don't, I don't know who it was that humped you. I forget. I think it was one of the Oxford colleges. Lancaster, no, Lancaster. Oh, was it Lancaster? Lancaster. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But poor Bamber Gascoigne ended up wearing a can of McEwen's Export because the, some of your supporters were, were were actually thought they were at a football match. Well, it was funny um, on the day of the of the, of the recording. It was a, it was a Wednesday, which in student world, as you know, is the day when it's a half day. And the Sports. students quite often go out for a little bit of a social. Mm. Uh, so instead of going for a social that day, they come down on two supporters' buses, <laughs> got down very early. Some of them had actually come down to watch a game instead of like, coming to the studios. Uh, the game was called off. So they were all a bit the worse for wear. And throughout it, they, they kept shouting out Shakespeare at every other answer. <laughs> now I'm sitting at the end of the row, right beside them. Because you know it looks like you're sitting above each other. Well, you're not. You're actually side by side. And I'm right at the end, listening to these bams shouting answers in me. And it was hard enough because we, although we lost quite heavily, we're actually very close to you know on the buzzer all the time to having the right answer. Uh, so it wasn't as bad as it seemed. It was a nightmare of an evening because you you spend a lot of time trying to get that far, and you make a bit of an arse yourself if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> uh, and it's. Um, it was a bit of a sore one, but it was. Uh, it's funny now looking back, and people do remember. It's funny that's that after the show was actually broadcast, it had to be really heavily edited. It was cut down to the shortest it's ever been <laughs> of a university challenge because Bamber had lost a rag a few times and told him off. Did Bamber? Uh, did, was he? Was he really? Did, did it... Oh, Bamber was furious. He actually had to stop it a couple of stop the, the recordings a couple of times. But uh, when it actually finally did go out, I remember walking back down Mary Hill Road after a thistle game and a car pulled up and the guy rolled in his window hey big man you were in University Challenge I said yeah and he started laughing at me I thought oh, <laughs> there we are recognition is its finest but um, and it, it, a funny story in the back of that I actually worked at Granada in 1980 uh, about a few years after that and I went down to the library where they kept all the tapes and I knew the librarian and I said look could you tell me if you've got University Challenge? I'd love to see this original tape and just see how bad we were in the night. And he spent about half an hour looking at the light and he says, oh, I'm sorry, we've just wiped that tape. And you know what? The relief 
was was great. I thought well, that's a, <laughs> it's a part of history gone, and clearly it hasn't. Listen, there's somebody we have videotape somewhere with, with it. No, there's not. <laughs> I would have, I would have had the, I'd have had the ransom note and the blackmail letter been there if that had been the case. Alan, and I, I know that you've you've, you've agreed to uh, participate in a wee program that we're doing soon about the fanzine movement. Yeah, you yes. you, you being uh, one of the pioneers that said movement. Uh, yes. But uh, but uh, for the time being, thanks very much for joining us today. I uh, really appreciate your time. Alan Nixon there, alluding to a, a programme that we're going to be putting out in the new year about the fanzine movement, and Alan, who was the founder of Jags Mag, obviously had a, a, a big hand in the development of something that's now a stable part of the football landscape. Accusations of SFA corruption over the award of a UEFA licence to Rangers in 2011, and their misleading of Mr Nimmo Smith's inquiry into improper registration of players, took yet another dramatic twist this week. Firstly, Celtic May and I use that word carefully, may be conceding ground to a group of their own shareholders concerned that Celtic, along with other clubs, may have been eyed access to lucrative European competition as a consequence of a failure on the part of the SFA to administer the licence process correctly. To many observers, the club has thus far been reluctant to take on concerns of those shareholders. The accusation is that the SFA failed to see that Rangers had an overdue tax sum payable to HMRC when the licence was processed. In a statement after the main business of the Celtic AGM on Wednesday, Celtic hinted that there might be a failure of governance which led to mistakes being made. This will increase the pressure on the SFA after they appear to admit another breach of their responsibility whilst defending themselves over the licensing issue. A recent report by the Offshore Game, a subsidiary of the Tax Justice Network, had raised concerns about governance of the game in Scotland. Subsequently, David Cohen of The Guardian had asked the SFA to clarify their reasons for awarding the licence when it appeared that Rangers had outstanding amounts due in social taxes, contrary to the criteria for such awards. Cohen was told by the SFA that they had a letter from HMRC which, although outlining the liability over an unlawful tax avoidance scheme, also indicated that the club had time to pay, thus allowing the award of the licence. This was in 2011, and for the SFA's point of view, so far so good. The problematic thing is this. If such a letter did not exist, then they have no evidence to defend against the accusation that they awarded the licence incorrectly. If a letter does exist as they say it does, then they should have made it available to the Nimmo Smith Inquiry, a panel set up a year later investigating breaches of rules concerned with the registration of players. Had they done so, and it is their responsibility as custodians of the game to have done so, Nimmo Smith could not have arrived at the conclusions he did. Compounding matters, the SFA also confirmed in writing to Celtic shareholders that they had been in possession of a letter from HMRC to Rangers where HMRC alleged the fraudulent nature of the scheme. Again, it arises that they failed to provide Nimmo Smith with a copy of that letter. So it's a catch-22 situation for the SFA. What's their answer? Heads in the sand, apparently. Various parties have asked for sight of the letter with the payment plan. Others have asked for clarification. All have been, as far as we know, ignored. The trouble now for Stuart Reagan is this. A perfect storm like the one brewing has the tendency to whip up and blow away the sand he's encased his head in. Soon there may be nowhere for Reagan to hide. Jim Craig really needs no introduction at all from me. 
a member of the spectacularly successful Celtic side of the 1960s and 1970s, is uniquely placed to draw comparisons between the nature of the game then and now. He's also more qualified than most to be able to assess the progress made by Celtic under Brendan Rodgers. So we asked him. Jim, first of all, thanks very much for joining us at SFM. Uh, and lots of talk in football these days about the differences in the game compared to when you played. Uh, the physical nature of it is certainly one. Contact nowadays is frowned upon quite a lot. But is there any reason for that, do you think, other than a cultural one? Is it just foreign attitudes prevailing over British stoicism, perhaps? Well, I think that um, the British game was always regarded as a bit tougher than the continental game. And I suppose that um, we've tried to tone down to fall in to line with them. I mean, they did things that we wouldn't approve of, you know, jersey pulling. And when I played South American teams, a bit of spitting as well, which, you know, a complete anathema to British teams. But uh, I think we have... Um, ameliorated our uh, hard tackling uh, to make it a wee bit more like the, the continental game. You must also recall, John, though, that it's quicker nowadays. I mean, the the 100 metres, the 400 metres and 800 metres are way back in the 1960s when I was playing were run in a slower time than they are just now in athletics. So you've got to take your lead from that as well. The game is quicker now than it was uh, back then. But I'm not so sure that uh, Jock's team would have been very impressed at his back four, passing the ball backwards and forwards, waiting, you know, to pass the ball forwards. Because he would have said, the quicker you get the ball forwards, the more likely you are to find that the opposition has not got a chance to organise their back four. So never mind she would have put it fanning about at the back. <laughs> well, I, 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 I want yeah, get forward and do something. Yes, but but I wonder if that's maybe a consequence of that new attitude towards contact. No, I just think that it's a, possession has become uh, all important. It always was, of course. I mean, if you kept hold of the ball, then the opposition doesn't have it. So it's common sense to do that. But there was for a while a tremendous emphasis on keeping possession. And Barcelona didn't help in this regard because you look at what was one of the best teams in the planet over the last few years and say, well, if it's all right to do that, if they are doing that, then we must try it as well. But you must remember that they have guys who could do it, you know? Yeah. And not every team has people like that. And what you have to do as a manager is to try and adapt your tactics to the skill level of the players you have. And I think that's sometimes forgotten about. Now, um, there was also at the time when you watch Barcelona and you see them doing this uh, tippy-tippy passing all over the place and it looks wonderful. If somebody's interrupted that by a rough challenge, the referees were very quick to step in, I thought, and penalise the guy who did that. Now, yeah. the challenge might have been perfectly legitimate, it just looked bad because you're stopping what is a nice style of play. But then yeah. that's your job as a defender. Your job as a defender is to make sure your opponent gets a hard time. And I don't mean by that fouling them. I just mean you make sure that you crowd him. When he gets the ball, you make sure that he, that he, he has a few opportunities to pass it to where it's going to be very, very dangerous. And and sometimes I think that we, we tend to forget that. 
So, you, so you think that their success is perhaps a due in part due to the fact that referees don't encourage contact? Then, yeah, I think that they don't. Now, if you watch, you know, any games on La Liga, and then you switch over to Serie A, for instance, now there is much more emphasis in Italy on tackling contact, and their referees will allow, I think, a lot more than the referees in La Liga. And um, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Well, over the last few years, it's quite noticeable that not many Italian teams have, you know, been at the death in the final stages of the the Champions League and uh, and Europa League, you know. So possibly it hasn't helped Italian football. But, John, it's a game of contact, you know, and... Well, it's lovely to see attractive football. At the same time, if you're playing a defensive role, your job is to make sure that the opposition doesn't get an easy passage. And if that means some pretty tough tackling, then by all means, let it go. Left for you to just... Well, I'm thinking that the team that you played in, you know, didn't have a skill shortage. And, and in fact, a lot of the teams in Scotland who were who, your contemporaries it certainly didn't have skill shortages either. And I'm just wondering, that, because I recently looked in the, at the, uh, the 1969 Scottish Cup final between Celtic and Rangers, it was on YouTube, and I, I was taken aback by the physicality of the game. And, I, and I actually, one of the first things I thought was, I'd like to see Barcelona dealing with that. <laughs> I don't think that they would have been able to cope with that, you know, with that kind of physicality. Might not. I mean, uh, don't forget, if I can talk about the, the team I played for, that um, Gemma McNeil and myself are all six foot one in height and built in proportion and could all play a bit of football. But we were all originally centre-halves, so mm. we were used to having defensive roles. And it was just the fact that Tam and I came into the game at a time when Jockstein wanted attacks to come from all areas of the pitch so we get the opportunity to come forward. Now, just before I arrived at Celtic Park, Gemma will tell you this himself, he was told that if he crossed the halfway line once more, he wasn't going to be playing in the following <laughs> week. Now, that sounds incredible now, but um, the the role of the fullback then was to get the ball forward. Jockstein, and I did an interview with him when he was manager of, of Scotland about this, and when he saw Real Madrid play in Frankfurt 1960, he realised then that attacks had to come from all areas of the pitch. There was only one out-and-out uh, defensive player in the Real Madrid team was Santa Maria, centre-half, Stropper, who was probably the worst-named player in the world because he was an out-and-out thug, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, Santa Maria did not suit him at all, but that was his job. Thou shalt not pass was his motto and everybody else could play football but in that area of the pitch his job was to stop the opposition It's funny you mentioned uh, Tommy Gemmell there because I remember Tommy Gemmell years ago saying it's no fair to ask if uh, if we could play in the modern game he says it's far more uh, pertinent to ask could the modern players have played in our game you, you know and, and, and there, there is some wisdom in that Well that's perfectly true I mean um, I attend a lot of uh, functions and I'm always asked the question, how would you guys do today? And my answer is always the same. Well, I'm afraid you've asked the question entirely the wrong way around. Yeah. It's how the guys of today would have coped with what we had to put up with, like two pairs of boots. The shorts and jersey from the day before 
were just put back on again. They were only washed once a week. And the socks, collectively from the day before, were thrown in a table and you had to run to try and get a pair that wasn't too bad. <laughs> so athlete's foot was rife in the dressing room. The physio wasn't a trained physio. The doctor had a, a medical practice and came in after he'd finished his morning surgery to deal with any injuries. Could they cope with all that? That is, that's why I say it's, the, the answer is not how would we do now. We would do wonderfully now. You know, you're getting paid nowadays as well. <laughs> <laughs> we were nearly doing it for the love of the jersey. Talking to Alan Nixon earlier, and, and he said he was really quite excited by the prospect of Celtic playing in England, although disappointed that he doesn't think it will happen. Hey, what are your views? I mean, you know, both do you think it will happen and, and in any way, in any case, do you think it would be a good idea? Well, there are, I don't think it will happen, to be quite honest. I mean, there might be go, things going on at a high level that I don't know about. But in terms of um, teams going into play in another country, I cannot see UEFA wanting that because uh, there are already anomalies in place and all the Cardiff and Swansea playing in the English League, but that all happened years and years and years ago, and I cannot see that happening. There are, there are certainly people in this country are against it. One is the, the, the police are against it. They have enough trouble with English supporters and Scottish supporters in their separate countries. They don't want them constantly mingling in one or other of those countries. Mm. So they're against it. You know, UEFA's against it for obvious reasons, because you know, it lessens their authority. I, I don't think it will happen in, uh, you know, in the next little while anyway. I think if somebody came in and did what happens in America, where you have these teams in the NFL, and it's, a, it's just a franchise, if you yeah. finish bottom, you're going to be there the next season. Mm-hmm. You get the best, you, you get the opportunity to pick the best players coming up from the draft. Yeah. And the theory behind that is to make your team better so it can compete the following season. Now, if that happened in Europe, our problem in Scotland is, would any of our top teams, Celtic Rangers, Aberdeen, would any of them be included in a 16-team European league by choice? But if Celtic... Well, to go back to Alan's comment, I mean, from his point of view, it means that if you took what is just now the best team in the league yeah. uh, out of the league... Yeah, and his party Thistle have got a better chance of winning something, haven't they? You know. Yeah, and I think he, he, he did say that. You know that, that you know that there's always an obverse side to the coin, and there's possible silver linings for the for the people who are left. And in fact, I think when you see Rangers going out the top league uh, in in the last five years, and you see the opportunities that have opened up for other clubs like Inverness, like Ross County, like St Johnston, then sure. you know that that that's I mean that that's no theory anymore. It, it actually happened. My own personal opinion is that Celtic shouldn't. Shouldn't be playing anywhere but Scotland, and and concentrate more in, in fixing the Scottish game. But you can see the problem that Celtic have, though, John. I mean, if you look at today's uh, table, just published uh, today after yesterday's games, Celtic's point of view, if they look at that and say to themselves, you know, we're actually doing very well here, you know, and really should be in a better league. So I can, I've always had some sympathy with that thought, but I just don't see it happening. Just raise another point at this particular yep. time because. Um, We've been talking uh, recently about um, Brexit. A new word has come into the the, the British language, yep. you know, and it seems to be in all the papers. Now, Brexit is likely to play a very big part in our football in the future because one of the uh, parts of being in the EU that was very beneficial to us, 
was that we had free movement of people between the various countries. Mm-hmm. Now, if we uh, come out uh, the so-called hard Brexit, if we come out of the European Union, then that will not be the case. And we might not find it quite so easy to encourage players to come and play in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we go for the soft Brexit, that would be better from our football point of view. But it looks as though we're going for a hard Brexit. It's certainly an interesting point of view about uh, you know what, what the situation would be, not just in Scotland, of course, but in England as well. Of course, um, yeah. you know, because um, you know what are they going to do? I mean, at the moment, none EU players uh, have to get permission. They have to have uh, played so many internationals, don't they? Uh, they they have to have a certain pedigree and a certain provenance before they're allowed to to, to come in here and get a work permit. But of course, that's. Be- will become more problematic if we achieve a hard break. So, of course, we're still a few years away from that happening, but it could have a significant effect on football and perhaps even more of an inf- effect in football in England than it would in Scotland. Alan Nixon also spoke earlier on about the 1971 League Cup final. Is he trying to keep in with me or something? Well, well can I just ask you if you for your excuses? <laughs> okay, his well, memory... His memories I only came on when it was 2 nothing, so I can only be blamed for two of the goals, you know? Um, no, I, I, I've, I've got to give full credit, first of all, uh, to Patrick Thistle, because David McParland that day had them really worked up to perform. They were absolutely superb on the day. I mean, four I think at half time, quite a shock to everybody. Um if anyone who's ever seen that game has a look at the second half, we missed some chances by the way. But all credit to them. They they played really well on the day. And I don't know if you're willing to tell us it but but what did the big man say to you at the end of the game? Well um he was very quiet. He didn't go for a rant because uh, the rant had come at half-time. Now, I good luck to Patrick Thistle. It's, uh, it's good for the game when uh, a, a team from what you might call the lower ranks uh, rises to the challenge and, and does really well. And, and uh, you know, they did beautifully on the day. Very philosophical, Jim. I'm sure it wasn't like that in the dressing room of full-time. No, time. Yeah, right. no, it wasn't. <laughs> and uh, we were all in a pretty bad mood for a few days. Or sometimes uh, these things... Uh, uh, do happen. You've got to uh, ride them and overcome them. And of course, um, six months later, we had we did a double Scottish League, Scottish Cup double. So um, it was it was a good comeback. Okay, um, and then speaking of uh, uh, recoveries, uh, do you think that Celtic will recover any European ground on Wednesday night when Barcelona come to Celtic Park? Well, you're up against a team who, uh, you know, uh, technically are a better side, you know, if you want to put it that way. I mean, um, uh, 7 nothing over there was a bit of a fluke, to be quite honest, because everything worked for them on the night. I don't think there were seven goals between them. But there's no doubt that they are uh, a more structured team than Celtic and um, have the, uh, certain players in certain positions who can really make a difference. Mm-hmm. So what Celtic then do is, as I mentioned right at the top of the programme, they've got to set out to frustrate the opposition, not to foul them, but to just frustrate them, to make sure that you get in their faces, to make sure that um, you, you interrupt their rhythm, make sure if there's a chance for a tackle, you put the tackle in fairly, but just let them know you're there. And um, make sure that you know you don't leave just one man nearly up front. You know You, you can leave a couple of men up front because that means that they have to leave 
three men back. They wouldn't leave mm. two men by. Their defence is not all that clever either. They would leave three men back if you leave two men up. So it starts pulling people out of midfield and, you know, that can change the course of the game. So I expect it will be um, quite a tough encounter for Celtic uh, on the night, but I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, you know, they got at least a draw. If not, you know, a narrow one out of it. OK, Jim, thanks very much for coming on TWM this week and good luck with Wednesday. Thank you very much indeed. Take care, John. Cheers. Jim Craig there, great to have him on the programme. Jim is currently working on a very detailed and personal history of his time with Celtic. 50 years in arrears and uh, he's at the moment halfway through the probably the best season in Celtic's history, the year that uh, ended with them winning the European Cup and every other trophy that they had entered for that year as well. If you want to have a look at what Jim is doing, which I believe uh, is going to be crowdfunding um, very, very soon in an effort to put some real meat on the bones of what he's doing, um, but it's at www.football5050.uk. www.football50.uk. Well, a bit longer than usual in the programme this week, but just before I go, can I mention again the live charity auction currently on the Scottish Football Monitor website. The bidding, currently at £150, is for a ball signed by every member of the Hibs 1991 Skull Cup winning team, donated by David Lowe to Cody's Christmas Toy Box, a charity set up to provide the children of less well-off families in Edinburgh with Christmas gifts. The charity is the inspiration of Cody McManus, a young boxer who's a member of Edinburgh's Holyrood Boxing Gym. At eight, Cody's compassion and wisdom belie his years. Please have a look at the auction for him. But there's also a link, direct link, to the charity's Just Giving page on the SFM website as well. Well, thanks again to Alan Nixon and Jim Craig, and to all of you who have taken the time to be at one once again with TWM on SFM.score. Bye for now.